Hi, and thank you for listening to Dream 10X Radio, where we interview people attempting to live extraordinary lives. Our twofold purpose is to both direct and inspire people bold enough to do the same. Dream 10X. Face your fears and make your life count. So let me start out by reading a paragraph from the book called The 10X Rule by Grant Cardone. I read this book in a day and I really enjoyed it. And this one um, page 179, this paragraph really stood out to me in the context of our new burgeoning podcast called Dream 10X Podcast. So just wanted to read this real quick. It says, successful people dream big and have immense goals. They are not realistic. They leave that to the masses who fight for leftovers. The second question of the 10X rule asks, how big are your goals and dreams? The middle class are taught to be realistic, whereas the successful think in terms of how extensively they can spread themselves. The greatest regret of my life is that I initially set targets and goals based on what was realistic rather than on giant radical thinking. Big think changes the world. I'll say that again. Big think changes the world. It is what makes Facebook, Twitter, Google, or whatever's coming next. Realistic thinking, small goals, and trivial dreams simply won't provide you with any motivation and they'll land you smack dab in the middle competing with the masses. Dream big, go big, and then figure out how to go bigger than that. Read everything you can about great people and great companies' accomplishments. Surround yourself with everything you can that inspires you to think big, act big, and reach your full potential. I was so motivated by reading that paragraph. Uh, that's one of, the one, one of the reasons that I wanted to start this blog, this website, this dream10x.com. Uh, website, podcast, etc., etc., and um, basically wanted to create a creative outlet whereby we would share our uh, experiences, knowledge, information, whatever we could gain from talking to other people who are out there trying to break out of mediocrity, break out of being amongst the masses and doing something superior, something superb, something excellent with their life. And just try to latch on to those experiences and and suck the marrow out of their lives as it were and bring it into our own or, you know, bring it, learn from their experiences, bring it into our own experience as we try to do something great in our lives as well. So that's my perspective on dream10x.com a little bit of my perspective i'm interested to hear a little bit of dr capel's perspective well eventually i want to actually write a paper about this um a paper a paper so i'm a fresh doctor we still went behind the ears a little bit that's why i love you (laughs) (laughs) and uh so i do want to this is a study i kind of want to explore a little bit and with that my main research question is whether and how big dreams have a positive impact on a person's life and how, what are the factors that actually play a role. So um, kind of different aspects I'm looking at are positivity, resiliency, mindfulness, and uh, yeah, so I'm really curious to see where this goes. Me too. Um, I have been a dreamer since I was a kid um, and I guess I have felt a little bit out of place a lot of times in many uh, aspects of life from, you know, school to social circles to whatever. I felt a little bit strange because I have been uh, prone to dream, whereas, you know, dream about what could be, dream about the future. I've always been into like technology and computers and robotics. And as a kid, I was (laughs) always begging my dad to help me build a a robot or um and and we did we built a paper mache robot one time when i was really young and uh had an erector set that i I used to help manufacture that um what's an erector set uh, it was uh, (laughs) a she's she's raising her eyebrows as she asked that uh it was a toy uh 
it was a, a set that came in a metal box that was a bunch of metal um, pieces of metal with holes in it with different like L frames and flat pieces of metal and lots of screws and bolts and motors and stuff and you could screw this the metal together and you could put motors on it and you could plug the motors in and they could like rotate and move other pieces of metal and so oh, I used that cool. to help build the robot. That's very cool. Yeah, it was yeah. awesome. I love that thing. It was a metal box. It mm -hmm. looked like a, a big long lunch box and it was just full of metal and bolts and all kinds of just fun build gadgets. Build whatever you wanted to build. And you could build whatever your imagination wanted wow. <laughs> to do. Yeah, so I used that thing a lot. Um, so yeah, I was constantly, I, I mean, space was a, a huge fantasy of mine one day of going to space and that lived with me all the way up to high school. Um, and my dreams of going to space led me to apply to the Air Force Academy to be a pilot. Mm -hmm. um, didn't get into the Air Force Academy. Um, didn't quite have the, the grades and the backing, the congressional backing for that. But, um, but that pushed me in the direction, in a certain direction, which definitely impacted my life at the time. I ended up going to the Citadel, um, which is another military college. And, um, studied Air Force ROTC for four years, so um, I didn't realize you did ROTC there. Air Force, everybody had to do ROTC. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Mine so it was, wasn't a choice; it was part of the curriculum. Yeah, mine was Air Force, and then when I got there, I'm like, ah, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure if this is what I'm cut out for. I don't know if I want to assign my life away to mm. the to the government for the next 48 years or whatever. So, um, but anyway, that definitely impacted me. Ended up at the Citadel and, mm -hmm. and the Citadel was overall a great experience. There was a lot of bad experiences there, but overall it was a really good experience. Did you choose it because you didn't get into the Air Force Academy? I did. Yeah, it was actually, um, actually my, the, uh, I went to go interview with the Congressman cause you needed a congressional uh, recommendation to go to the Air Force Academy. And the Congressman told, I don't even remember who it was. So somewhere in San Antonio, Texas, um, and the congressman told me, well, we don't have any more billets available for the Air Force Academy, but would you be willing to take Military Academy? Mm. Yes, West Point. And uh, I was so dead set on the Air Force Academy at the time that I turned him down. And wow, in retrospect, really? <laughs> in retrospect I, I, you know, I'm taking my dad's perspective now yeah. at my age. And I'm like, you idiot! <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> but he, I don't. I don't think he ever really got out. I mean, he was a little shocked that I yeah. turned it down because he was seeing that free, you know, four-year ride there. Yeah. Um, I'm sure he was a little upset with me, but he loved the fact that I went to the Citadel anyway because that's the way my dad was. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not like him at all, <laughs> but he was very proud of me for going there. It, it was a, it, So it ended up being a toss-up between VMI and the Citadel, mm -hmm. and I figured uh, something drew me to the Citadel in South Carolina uh, over VMI. I, I can't really say what it yeah. was I don't know but that's that's where I ended up going to school um, so yeah so and even as a kid um, I had an interest in computers and my dad realized that in me at a young age and again when we were uh, living in Fort, on Fort Sam Houston in San Antonio Texas he, he my dad was an army chaplain but somehow he found somebody who was doing programming for the army and computer programming mm -hmm. and to me still to this day it's like they had computer programmers back then like I was a, like in the 80s like 84-ish time frame you know it was kind of weird but he found this guy he took me to his office during the week uh, you know in the evening and I remember that to this day the guy r was writing binary on the on the whiteboard mm. trying to explain binary to me What's As binary? A Twelve or thirteen year old. It's the ones and zeros that computers basically understand. The language that computers understand. The ones and the zeros. The ones and zeros. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I had at the time I had no idea what he was like. I, I had no recollection of that. And you know now I can program in Java and Python and you know these higher level languages. I don't have to worry about the ones and the zeros. Hmm. Um, but the whole thing was fascinating to me at the time, and that that um, while it wasn't really a some big scary dream as a kid, it was more of, hey, this is something I'm really interested in as a kid. Like, I, I wanna research more about that. I, so I was reading books and talking to people as a kid and mm -hmm. um, 
you know, just it, I, it was a technical bent, um, which is weird because my education was not really technical. It was more liberal arts. Mm -hmm. And but as a profession, I ended up doing more technical stuff. So um, I think on the whole, that benefited me having a liberal arts education with a technical interest. Uh, I wouldn't say technical mind because that sounds like I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not really that technical. But um, I think having the combination of those interests and and kind of dreams helped make who I am today. Um, I think I'm, I'm really good in my field because of that. Absolutely, yeah. because you have like a totally different lens in which to look at information, as opposed to those who like grew up in the technology industry. They have um, more of a technical a, lens versus you a narrow, a, a narrower yeah, focus. Yeah, yeah, more yeah. of a narrow, more detailed focus versus you have that more broad spectrum systems thinking approach. So it's, it's I hope good. So. Yeah. I, I hope that's what well, it is. Well, from our conversations, you definitely yeah. do, but yeah. not that we can explain the podcast here. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I think that definitely helps to broaden. And so it's a really good life lesson, too, is. Uh, when you're in your own career field, it's good to take those different assignments outside of what you're interested in to learn how different people operate, so you, how you can communicate with different kinds of people and how they think, so that you can only better yourself in what you do. Yeah, so I think kind of the overarching point there uh, in trying to find your way in life, that it is important to figure out what it is that interests you, what what motivates you, like be in tune to that and, and follow it for a while. You don't have to follow it forever, mm -hmm. but follow it for a while and see where it goes. Yeah, totally. Um, so these are like little tactical things you can do to improve your life and kind of figure out what to do in your life as a young, young kid. Um, you know, kind of follow your heart, I guess. Um, there's a lot, a lot of talk out there that, well, you should only do what you're really interested in, um, or, or what your, pa what your passion is and what your love is. And I think there's some truth to that, but, um, I think in terms of finding real wealth in life that that may not necessarily be true. Like sometimes you just have to, to, uh, you know, you have to grind it out like in your in your career like sometimes you may not be 100% passionate about what you're doing you just have to grind you have to just get up in the morning and do stuff that you don't want to do or what about those people who like are don't even know what their passion is like how do you explore that and find out what your passion is well so that's part of why I want to talk about this because mm -hmm. I think my kids struggle with that a lot like they're not they don't from what I'm gathering from talking to them they don't really know what their passion is yeah and well, and maybe not even, let's not use passion. I think passion implies that, oh, I just love doing something and that's what I'm going to do. I, I don't know that anybody's really passionate about working for somebody else, regardless of what it is. I, personally, I don't think that's the case. I mean, um, I don't, you correct me if you disagree. Oh, no. But. So I'm looking at like some of the people that I work with and some of the people in like learning and development because I'm in learning and development. And um, a lot of the people that I've worked with or, um, or currently work with love learning and development. They love what they do. They Even love though they work for somebody else. 100%. Because it's not about working for somebody else. It's about getting in front of a group of amazing people and helping them achieve more and helping them achieve greatness. Or my coaches. Um, so the coaches that I work with, um, they love coaching because it gives them such energy to help others and find that passion. Um, so it's, it's definitely, definitely, and I would say passion and use that word strongly hmm. because that's what gets them up every day. I'm getting up to coach somebody else and that is amazing for me. So yeah, it's, it's definitely, um, and maybe it's just our career field, but I, I, okay. I think it's not necessarily for everybody working for somebody else. It's getting up in the morning and loving what you do and how you do it. I don't have that. I mean, I, I, I don't really, either. <laughs> I really enjoy programming mm -hmm. and I really enjoy creating software from scratch. Yeah. Um, I, I love creating software that people use. Um, but I mean, I, but yeah, I don't have that, that passion that you just described there. So yeah, I don't either. <laughs> so but I that's see why it every day, that, that's so why it's I'm interesting. Like, that's why I'm like, if I were to counsel my kids, I'd yeah. be like, you know, don't put too much weight on finding something that you're passionate about. Put put more weight on finding something that 
pays you a lot of money and that you can pay the bills. If you're going to work for somebody else, make sure that you can make a lot of money and pay the bills and save enough for, for figuring out financial freedom. That's to me, that's what it's all about. Like mm-hmm. if you're going to have to work for somebody else, you know, well, I would you kind gotta, of you gotta be willing that's to ditch, your passion. dig the ditches, huh? I would kind of argue that that's your passion. The financial freedom, finding financial that's freedom. That's the why is, you're willing to put yourself to exactly. the grind. Exactly. Yeah. So that's, yeah, yeah, that's your passion is getting your, getting to your freedom. Okay. All right. I could see that angle. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but beyond that, beyond finding something that um, keeps you motivated and keeps you mentally engaged to make money. Yeah. Um, what are some things that inspire you to move your life to a different direction to change your life what are some of your big life dreams me in general yeah you no you specifically (laughs) (laughs) me oh what do you mean you in general (laughs) so just this is hard for me in a lot of ways because i'm used to being facilitator coach whenever all the things that i do so talking about myself has always been a challenge (laughs) ironically because i talk all the freaking time no you don't you're an introvert like me (laughs) okay that's true um so, well, when I was growing up, I grew up with my parents and Gilbert and Sullivan and opera and um, my dad has an amazing voice. It was never trained, just phenomenal. And our family spontaneously burst into song at every possible moment because that's just kind of how we roll. Um, but I really wanted the Von to- Trapp family? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and my parents went skiing actually at the Von Trapp house. And- <laughs> And way, way, way back in the Where day. Where is that? Austria or Switzerland? Neither. It's in America now. Um, so huh? it's in the U.S. Like the, so Marie, okay. the person, the Maria Von Trapp, yep. like the, the real America. person. Yeah. Yep. And so they had a chalet and I forget which state it's in. Um, so that's really embarrassing. Hmm. But my parents oh, went there. Colorado or Wyoming or something. I think it's north in the East Coast. Oh. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Um, totally making that up, but I'm pretty sure it's in the East Coast. And so my parents went skiing there, and my, that's when my mom fell off the cliff. Oh. So my mom skied off a Seeing cliff. Seeing the hills are alive, <laughs> I am dead. <laughs> yeah, and her, is this is the old school where you like have straps on your skis. And so she went off the cliff, she's hanging upside down by her strap, looking down a cliff. From a tree? From a tree. And they were able to rescue her, thankfully, because I wouldn't be alive. Um, and uh, then she was in a cast from her hip all the way down to her ankle the whole rest of the time. And of course, dad went skiing. And <laughs> Mom um, would, would hang out in this, this uh, bread and breakfast that Maria Von Trapp ran. And uh, Maria Von Trapp yelled at my dad <laughs> for leaving her. Aww. Which is hilarious to me whenever I watch Sunday. Do you music. remember this? No, I wasn't alive. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. I wasn't even a gleam yet. Okay. <laughs> Karen was alive. Wow, either. to know Maria Von Trapp would be. Right? Did they get her autograph or anything? No, no, but Mom always says, she yelled at your father. She yelled at, she your, yelled. Fa- she yelled at your father. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, Maria yeah. Von Trapp is like the nanny, right? In the yeah, yeah, the life? Julie Andrews. Julie Andrews. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So it's it, pretty cool. Um, <laughs> so Von Trapp family aside, yes, we spontaneously burst into song. <laughs> and so what does that have to do with my original question of dream? Dream 10X, yeah. So uh, I wanted to be an opera singer, and that was my whole goal in life, is to be an opera singer. And, and it's I, all because of Maria Von Trapp. Clearly. <laughs> so there's probably no connection at all. It's just kind of a fun no sidebar. I no idea about this. But really? This is an interesting story. Yeah, we have lots of, we'll have to start taping the family stories. Um, they've had a lot of crazy experience experiences. Um... So I wanted to be an opera singer and um, I didn't even know that was possible and then figured out that actually I'm a really good singer for the average singer. I'm a mediocre opera singer. Um, And uh, that was a hard moment to realize that and that's okay. And uh, I went to university for it. It was great, had a good time, then joined the Navy (laughs) and uh, decided to become a vet tech and wanted to be a veterinarian and also realized that I can't do 
organic chemistry. Well, wait a minute. What do you mean? Where did you find out you weren't cut out to be an opera singer? And how did you try to prepare for that? So uh, the reason I found out I wanted to, I, I even had a chance of doing opera is in, um, when I lived in Saudi and we were, how old a, were you? Um, is this seventh grade or eighth grade? Okay. Yeah. So seventh or eighth grade. Middle school. We were doing auditioning. Oh, it was seventh grade. So we were auditioning for um, Pirates of Penzance, another go button Sullivan. Mm. And uh, dad had me audition for Buttercup. It was so cute. He built this whole little tray for me and had all these different things that I could act out during the audition. It was uh, awesome. He built a what? Like a tray the, so I could act out for the audition. Okay. For Buttercup. Um, oh yeah, it was awesome. Um, so yeah, so I, I did that. And then afterwards, we're all messing around back, you know, after the audition. And I'm like, I want to be an opera singer, and I just kind of burst out faking opera singing. And the actual, our, our um, chorus director came out into the hallway and said, who is that? And so I said, it was me. He's like, come in here. <laughs> so I came in, and he started playing scales. He's like, do that again. And he's like, this is how you need to sing. And I'm like, oh. And so it was just an amazing experience. Um, Jim Niebuhr was his name. And uh, yeah, just just really awesome. He's like, you, you, you've got this. This is how you need to sing more with your, your diaphragm and you could really be an opera singer. I'm like, Oh, that's cool. <laughs> and that's kind of where the dream took off. Okay. Is somebody, a mentor telling me like, Hey, you got this in you. Oh, wow. Yeah. That is fascinating. I haven't heard that story either. <laughs> this is what, this is the real reason I do this podcast. <laughs> Get to know your wife, start a podcast. <laughs> More wine. <laughs> yeah. A good story. Yeah. And I'd been in choruses like all through elementary school and stuff because I love singing, but didn't know that that was within me. So that uh -huh. was cool. And so from then on, that's where it took off. And I took voice lessons all through Tabor and. Tabor was great. Oh, uh, that was um, ten through twelve. Okay. Yeah. So you took voice lessons all through Still high with the dream. Oh yeah. And then my goal, so at Tabor kind of had options and classes, so I, I didn't... thought it was Taba. Taba. It is kind of Taba. It's on a cape. Good whoopsta. So yeah, it was, it was incredible. And I f literally dug into music and French and didn't have to do sciences or any of the... I did English, obviously, um, some of these other classes, um, but didn't have to do a lot of the more challenging things like... I don't know, chemistry, biology. <laughs> well, okay, so Tabor, singing lessons, opera singer, wannabe, then what? Yeah, so I went to school in New Orleans and I had a phenomenal experience in New Orleans and studied music and met this amazing homeless woman opera singer in the street and befriended her and she just was beautiful. And, uh, and New Orleans is an awesome place to <sighs> cut your teeth on music. Oh my god! The music there. You took you took me there when we first met. Yeah. And I was blown, oh, absolutely blown away by the quality of music mm -hmm. in the street. Yeah. Like, I'd never heard music so good. So yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Oh no! I no, no I love that it. That's a perfect. Great yeah. place to become a musician. Absolutely. And I, really I guess Nashville is similar. I've never been to Nashville, but New Orleans, holy cow! Yeah. Like, Talent, unbelievable talent, like and it's heavenly, everywhere. heavenly talent, like <laughs> unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. And why yeah. is that? And are people drawn to that city, or do they grow up in it? Is it cultural? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. know. Man. I don't know. Um, I was totally shocked. I'm like, what the heck? I had no idea. Yeah. So when I was in the Navy, that's one of the reasons I wanted to go to Italy. So I was stationed in Puerto Rico, and they said, "Do you? We have orders to Italy, and we're going to send you to Naples." I'm like, "Yes." Finally, I get to like experience yeah. opera because it's part yeah. of the culture again. Uh -huh. And then that, um, unfortunately, it didn't go awry. Of course, I got to Hawaii, which was lovely because I met Liz. But, <laughs> but at the same time, like being engrossed in this oh. culture of people who, who embraced the arts and music in a different way of thinking would have, I think, would have been really powerful for me. So you went from uh, New Orleans to Hawaii. Oh, I'm so sorry. I totally. <laughs> 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 so I went from New Orleans and then ended up dropping out of college for some reasons and lived with my sister in Chicago and then ended up joining the Navy. Okay. And um, ironically, or coincidentally, actually more realistically, coincidentally, like you, um, I had somebody who I met in Hawaii 
in eighth grade when we were visiting there. Hmm. And he was uh, the head of the Naval Academy. Hmm. And he was going to write me a recommendation for the Naval Academy. No kidding. Hmm. I didn't know this either. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I'm Were like, you thinking of applying? Oh, yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, then I totally changed my mind. And I'm like, no, this isn't the, the military is not for me. I need <laughs> to really rough. focus in on that music. That's a good decision. <laughs> right? And then I joined the Navy later with that. So I, I dove into music and my parents were like, really? Really? You had like an in, right? The head of the Naval Academy wanted you there and you said no. <laughs> so they, they still like, yeah. give, me, give me a lot of crap for that decision. But okay. I, right. I still think it was the right decision. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you on that. Um, sort of. <laughs> what do you do? Yeah. Um, Stupid kids. Right? Yes. But it wasn't. It would not have been a good decision for me. For the Navy was not a good decision for me for a lot of reasons. But it was for a lot of reasons too. So fast forward to the point where you realize opera singing wasn't might not have been happening for you. So that was in in school when I went down to New Orleans when I realized that. Oh, probably, that's where you. Yeah, that's where I realized that I'm I'm an average. I'm I was really good at Tabor. I was really good in the small pool. I'm a great singer, but when I get down to like the pool of people who actually make it in the real world, I'm very mediocre. Where was this environment that you learned that? In New Orleans. I, I know environment. In, in school? In school, yeah. Just so from other students who were there? From teachers. From what, they told you that? Or mm -hmm. they told you you weren't good enough? Oh yeah. And so that, that was, was enough to break you? It, it was. Because okay. I was young and I didn't have a lot of experience and at Tabor, they gave us so much positive energy and so much reinforcement that you can do this. You're going to be good. You can, you know, you just give it all you got and you're going to be fine and you'll make your way and you'll find your way. And then I get to university and you get told, yeah, you're, you're not very So much. now I'm a little bit sad because now I realize something about you I didn't know that you let other people take your dream away from you. But I learned, so that was a good thing about the Navy is because I had similar experiences for different reasons in the Navy. And that's when I realized that to stand up for myself and okay. that not to, not to accept what other people think of okay, me. Okay. So now this is good. So you learned something about yourself in the Navy that you didn't have in you. Yet. Yeah. So, um, I was, again, just so you guys know, I have blue hair and nose piercing and a lot of tattoos <laughs> and I was kind of like this in the Navy. And culturally, that's kind of a misfit. <laughs> um, so I've always kind of been this way. It's just finding people who accept me for who I am. And when I was in the Navy in this way, let's say I got, I got this tattoo on the back of my neck. I grew up in Saudi Arabia. The tattoo's in Arabic. Mm. My direct supervisor told me that I was a piece of crap for getting this tattoo Ooh, because he could not read it. It was unacceptable because he could not read it. It was not in English. <laughs> Again, I grew up in Saudi Arabia around a myriad of other cultures and experiences and people. And for somebody to tell me they don't understand something, so I'm dumb. Wow. So that was very powerful for me to realize that um, I am not like a lot of other people. Mm, okay. And then I had a different person in the chain of the chain of command, <laughs> speaking of discussion today, um, who literally called me into his office every day to tell me what a piece of shit sailor I was. Hmm. And I cried mm -hmm. because I was so mad and mm -hmm. I was an E4 and could not do a damn thing about it. Mm. And he was an E6 mm. and you're a piece of shit. You need to get out mm. and trying to get me out. Mm. And um, then I went to Hawaii and it was a whole different experience. Like the people there were really nice, very helpful and supportive. How long did that last? Three years. Three years every Three years day? of every day being told I was a piece of shit. Damn. So, you know, that wears on you. That's like Citadel. It is. It is. <laughs> so, four years. <laughs> I dealt with it for four years, so. Right. But it, a river. <laughs> I got to live off base. I had a dog, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I go get, hiking, I, go to the I beach. I didn't get to go anywhere. <laughs> right, right. So I had a life outside of that. And that's where, like, I realized being told that every day that yeah. I can't accept this for myself. You know, I need to get past this and figure out who I am. And I don't take, I don't accept you accepting me like that because I know who I am and I know who I am. So that really you figured me. out a way to pull yourself up by your bootstraps to get to, to mentally uh, catapult yourself above the 
complaint or the animosity you were receiving at the time. Absolutely. It's not that you were getting positive reinforcement mm -hmm. from somebody that, but so that's interesting that how this negative energy coming at you helped propel you above it better than the positive reinforcement. Is that a true statement you think? That is a true statement to help me figure out who I was and get to me, get me to where I am. Yeah. Because it seemed like the positive mentorship you were receiving about your singing really motivated you to try, but as soon as you got some negative response, uh, maybe I'm just pulling something out of my butt here, mm -hmm. but you got negative response in college and then you buckled, sounds like. But then, but then when you really got some animosity toward your character and stuff in the Navy, then you figured out, you know, I'm better than this. Forget you. And then I don't it was, have to listen to this shit. Absolutely. And then it was interesting because after the Navy, I went back into getting a double major in biology and music because I wanted to be a vet tech and I wanted to go back to singing. Mm -hmm. And we had to do um, in, in, in music performance where you get up on stage and sing in front of all the professors and they grade you. And that was terrifying um, given these past experiences. And for uh, my voice teacher was awesome. She again was really supportive and very motivating. And so she helped me be more resilient in that whole process. Mm. Um, so for me, I do need that combination of negative and, they, and I got some negative feedback because I, I was, you know, getting, getting my groove back. Mm. Um, so that negative feedback was okay because I got the positive, okay, this is how we're going to fix it and move you forward. So it's definitely that mentorship was very powerful for me mm. to get the both. So there's no age, uh, there's, there's really no age limit on becoming an opera singer? There isn't. So why haven't you pursued it after you became more into a fullness, a, a better awareness of who you are and what you were capable of post-Navy? Right, because now I have a thousand other interests and being a <laughs> Life changes. <laughs> it is. It like, just changed. So I, I, I love singing and actually I auditioned recently for a uh, virtual Gilbert and Sullivan show because it's COVID time right now. And mm. so it was literally like I saw the audition and like, nah, I'm not going to do this. And then one day when James was like, you were at work, <laughs> I'm like, you know what? Why not? And so I went ahead and... Um, put on my wedding dress and <laughs> did the audition. So it's, I do, I love being on stage. Why did you put on a wedding dress? What was the song? <laughs> it's um, not getting married today. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> um, Wishful thinking, I guess. Maybe. I no, know, you're the best decision I ever made. <laughs> uh, so, well, with that, it's I, I realized about myself, too. I love singing. I love being on stage. It's a lot of fun, and it's so mm. motivating for me. And at the same time, it's not my entire life and my entire world. Mm -hmm. And for performers like that, it has to be your entire world. Uh, and I have more things I want to do. So, um, I, I'm sorry. I, it's I been all about me for like an I entire know, hour. I know, but the evolution of a dream is really interesting to me. So... It sounds like when you were younger, this was your be all and end all. This is what you wanted to do. And then at this later part of your life, it's just a, a wonderful hobby that you have mm -hmm. and you tend to cultivate from time to time. And it's just kind of part of you, but it doesn't, it's not an overarching driver for you anymore. Right. Exactly. So it, it helped pull you into adulthood. Mm -hmm. It helped shape who you are as an adult. Uh, even though you didn't achieve that dream. Absolutely. And, and, I, and I, that's one of the things I love about dreams is that <laughs> they can encompass, they, they can the, uh, consume you. Like you have to, once they latch onto you, like I'm speaking from personal mm -hmm. experience, once a dream latches onto you, you, they consume you. You become obsessed with achieving that dream maybe for a while, not forever. And, and, Maybe you'll get lucky enough or, the, you know, the stars align and you actually reach that dream. But um, at a minimum, it changes who you are mm -hmm. and it becomes part of you. And, you. and you're better. You're a better person because of it. That's so true. Yeah. yeah. So that's one of the things I love about having these big dreams. I, I think it's such a powerful concept. Well, tell us about your rowing experience and how that changed you. So one of my dreams, um, and it's very similar to how you got started with music and followed a very similar path. So there's a lot of repeating patterns, I think, in dreams, just between the two of us. Yeah. And that's why I wanna, I'd want to. i love to talk to other people and see if they've had similar experiences. But um, 
so I rode in college uh, uh, at the Citadel and a team, uh, team, uh, yes, it was a rowing team. Um, <laughs> it was a club. So we were not very good. <laughs> we, were, we were, we were the earliest hackers there ever was. Like we just get out there and just flail around. But, um, you know, Citadel guys are a bunch of, oh, just pull real hard. We don't need any form or anything. And we ended up winning. Winning a few races that way, you know, just yanking on the oar real hard. No, no, uh, no real form or anything. No, no technique. But anyway, um, so we, I, I, you know, I just loved hanging out with the team. A small group of guys really enjoyed everything. Or really enjoyed the races and trying to meet chicks on the weekends and stuff like that. Different rowing, rowing clubs and coxswains and stuff like that. Always fun. Um, so at the end of my senior year. Um, we had this coach that I absolutely loved. He was, uh, I don't remember his name. I don't remember where he came from. He was from the Northeast somewhere. He knew, he knew how to row really well. He, but not only that, he had a poetic flair about him. Mm. And so poetry just, he would talk about poetry and relate it to the motion of rowing. And we were like, you know, this is a military school, right? <laughs> you shouldn't really be so artistic about this stuff with us. But he really um, embedded in me, uh, you know, a certain love for the sport. And uh, so anyway, um, senior year, um, we're, we're all gathered around him. He's like saying his goodbyes. So it was the last time we we're ever going to see him and stuff. And he's just kind of asking what's next for us and whatever. And and I was just kind of joking. I was like, you know what? Maybe I'll shoot for the Olympics. He's like, you should, you know? So there was that little spark. That's that's all it was. It was just yeah. like a little flippant conversation. Hey, I'll never see you again. Yeah, maybe I'll shoot for the Olympics. So, you know, kind of like you'd have t- talking over some beers or something. And um, So all of a sudden, boom, I had this thorn in my brain. Like, ah, oh, you know, that's a possibility. That's something I could do with my life where I could potentially make a mark on the world with some skills that I'm, I, I, I'm working on and I can, I could make better and I could make a mark in the world with that. So anyway, seed planted, um, ended up going to graduate school, still pondering the idea. Um, we had a little, uh, I was in Germany at the time going to graduate school. There was a, a electronic rowing machine in the gym there. And so I'd always sit on that and it was always, you know, it was one of those big screens things where you would race other people. Mm. And so, uh, I just, I, I just loved seeing all the other boats in my heat and beating them and stuff. And, uh, I decided to go ahead and commit to trying to become an Olympic scholar. Um, for 1996 Olympics, I ended up going to the 1992 Olympics in uh, Barcelona as a spectator, and I had, uh, you know, no money. I was a student, and I slept in the station, uh, train station in Barcelona. Just had no money for a hotel and any of that, and I missed the rowing events because I was stuck in the train station and couldn't get out to the to the rowing venue. And uh, I just saw some water polo and a little bit of Chinese women's basketball. Then <laughs> you know tickets nobody wanted. And, but, uh, but I was there and I experienced the uh, the Olympic spirit, you know, the aura of the place. And I was there in the the village and it was fantastic. I loved it. And um, 96 in Atlanta was where I had to get to, you know, four years. Like, that's near impossible for somebody who can barely row at that point. But um, it didn't stop me from trying. I wrote a letter to U.S. Rowing and asked them, what does a guy do who, you know, wants to try out for the Olympics? Where, where do I go? What do I do? Who do I talk to? Had no idea. Uh, US, this is before the internet and sending emails and stuff. This was early 90s, 90, 90, 92, 91, 92. And so the US, US Rowing wrote me a nice letter back and said, you know, a big long letter that I read a hundred times. And it said, look, if you're interested in rowing sweep, then uh, you need to go find, I think it was Mike Teddy on uh, Lake Carnegie up in Princeton. And uh, if you're interested in rowing sculling, you need to go down to Occoquan, Virginia and find Igor Grinko and talk to him and find out what to do. 
And uh, it was just the, I, was, I just read that letter over and over. I was like, I want to be an Olympic scholar. I'm going to go to Virginia. I'm going to figure out how to do it. So I got back to the States and long story short, I, within months, I picked up, packed up my stuff and moved to Washington, D.C. area. <laughs> That's a heck of a move. With my coffee single on top of my car. and um, Coffee's the brand? Coffee was, um, yeah, it's an the old, old yeah. brand single, um, all wood, and then it had um, a plastic plastic top, kind of vinyl plastic clear top on it with the uh, stainless steel, or not stainless steel, but tubing, tube riggers, metal, metal yep. riggers, and all wood seats and wood rails on it. heavy. Yeah, it was heavy. It was an old boat, but I didn't, I didn't yeah. care it was a single. I never rode a single before, well, so. So that's what I'm curious, too. Like, after, so you did sweep the whole time at Citadel. Why did you choose to go uh, uh, single? Because I wanted to be on my own. I wanted okay. to, I wanted a sport that um, my, what I was proving was how, how good I was. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Or how bad I was, you know. Yeah. I wanted it to be about me. Yeah, yeah. You know, That's it's cool. uh, vanity, I guess. You know. Um, but uh, so the ultimate dream was to be a single scholar. Yeah. But uh, I soon realized that hey, I'd be happy to be in a double, a quad, <laughs> an eight, an octuplet, or you know whatever. A boat. <laughs> a boat. Any. A water boy. Anything. <laughs> Uh, I didn't. I I knew so little about single sculling that I had floaties on my riggers, mm -hmm. and so when I put my boat, I, I'll never forget this. I put my boat for the first time on the Akaquan, uh, you know, putting it in the water with my floaties on the singles, and no lie, Igor Grinko comes down with his quad. There was like Brian Jameson and all these other huge guys with tree trunks for legs, putting their quad in the water right next to me. And the contrast, it couldn't be any... Hi, guys! <laughs> yeah. Hey, fellas! You want to exchange numbers after this? You want to hang out for beers? <laughs> I mean, you can't imagine a greater contrast yeah. between these guys who could crush anybody in the world almost to me. You can't just try to... But the same dream. The yeah. same damn dream. Yeah. So... I love it. <laughs> So funny. So, uh, yeah. And so they shoved and they were immediately gone up river and Grinko went with them and I shoved and I'm <laughs> sitting there for minutes trying to get my balance and making sure my boat wasn't going to tip over and then started taking my first strokes and, um, I'm out there messing around and, and they go down the, there's a court, you know, the course that goes by the grandstands down on the Occoquan. They go down there and they're doing a 2k back and I'm down there. I'm not, I'm at kind of, they go all the way down to the beginning of the course and come back by the time I launch and get to the beginning oh of the course. <laughs> so I'm out there uh, and, you know, I'm just taking small strokes, just trying to get comfortable and everything. And then my floaties start coming loose. And so I'm, I'm getting really wobbly and I'm trying to, you know, screw the things on while they come rowing back. And I'm like, oh man. They... So for those of you non-rowers, imagine riding a bicycle for the first time again and uh, having the training wheels fall off. <laughs> That's pretty much what it was yeah. with Olympic bikers riding yeah. <laughs> yeah. you looking at You're like, I had no chance in hell. Like, yeah. But I didn't know. Yeah. I had no idea and I didn't care. And that's why I, I got as far as I did is because I was completely naive, mm -hmm. totally naive. Um, we were positive and you were motivated and you had that enthusiasm I, and passion. It obsessed me. Yeah. I was totally obsessed. I'd go to bed at night dreaming about how to place my oar in the water. Mm -hmm. uh, literally every night. That's, you know, how to send the boat. How, everything was how to hold my back, how to drive with my legs. Like every night, that's all I thought about for years. Yeah. That's how obsessed I was with that. Um, so yeah, and um, I remember, you know, after a couple of months, you know, of training down there, I finally got a chance to do a 2K in front of Igor Grinko, and who was the sculling coach at the time, and um, I was just barely under seven minutes or something. It was like 6:50 or so. It was really slow. What's what's Olympic time for the men? It's probably you know low six, high five, something okay. like that. 
five and a half minutes is probably what he was looking for. And, and you were I, at seven. I was just, at, I was probably like 6.50. Okay. <laughs> and he looked at my time and he's like, my women roll faster than you. Oh. That's all he said to me. And I was like crushed. I was crushed on one side, but on the other side, I thought it was really funny that that's all he said to me. <laughs> I still just say that he didn't encourage me or nothing. Wow. He just said my women row faster than you. It was like, well, that's all you gotta say really to me. Like <laughs> I gotta get my ass in gear. <laughs> and Damn. so I, I called him a couple times too. I'm like, you know, can you just offer me any advice? Like what can I do? Like I, I just wanted to know. Give me some and he said, row a lot. That was, he's like, you got to row a lot. You got to row like miles and miles and miles a day. As somebody who doesn't know how to row, you got to get your ass out there and just, just grind. So it's the experience that makes a big difference. It's the mileage. Yeah. yeah. Every stroke, every stroke, build that motor memory, that 10,000 hours that mm -hmm. we keep hearing about. Like you need 10,000 hours of strokes. You need to feel what that boat feels like and what it feels like to you know, be off balance and still not be dragging your oars and maximizing your utility and mm -hmm. minimizing friction. And, and it just takes hours and hours and hours of, of rowing and filling the boat under you for that. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of shocked by that. I was like, really? Just, just, you don't even need instruction. You just, you just need to be out there rowing. Nobody needs to be telling you anything. You just need to row miles and miles and miles and miles. <laughs> And then the, uh, then the fine tuning will come into play after that. Like mm. if you've, if you've got the talent to compete at that level, mm -hmm. but so a lot of things happened in my life to where I ultimately had to give up the dream. Um, you know, having kids and you know, just a bunch of different factors. But, uh, again, um, that dream that obsessed me became something that definitely changed who I was, impacted my life, made me a healthier man, helped me meet my wife, helped me meet a lot of friends along the way. I mean, just incalculable little positive benefits mm. from that, that dream, even though I didn't even really come close to becoming an Olympic scholar. But having that passion helped you. Having that passion, that drive to shoot in that direction, yeah. holy cow, changed my, I'm sure it changed my life. Like, yeah. I could have been like a, you know, one of the, I could have been a sedentary programmer who's, you know, 50 pounds overweight all his life and probably died of a stroke or something by now. You yeah. know, who knows? Yeah. Who knows? But uh, I mean, I'm not really all that fit now, but I still sit on a rowing machine and it's, you know, cause I love it. I can't get it out of me. Yeah. I, so, yeah, which still baffles me because the rowing machine versus the water, mm. <laughs> it's all the same, you know, it's just the, it's the monotony of the movement, the rowing movement. That and so the, the meditation, meditation, the meditation and mindfulness, so yeah. you're experiencing every stroke and feeling what that feels like. So that mindful movement. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's in some ways similar to a runner's high, I guess. I, I've ne I can't say I've ever experienced a runner's high because running just sucks to me for the most part. Mm -hmm. um, maybe I have experienced a runner's high, but yeah, uh, the, the, uh, the rhythm of the rowing is very meditative to me. Mm -hmm. It's that every stroke at, at a certain time, um, it's the meditation. I don't even have to listen to music or anything. Yeah. It's just, I, I just love it, even though it's really hard. So um, I think we'll leave this podcast at that, talking about our two dreams. And um, we've got many, many more dreams between us that maybe we'll, we'll share in later podcasts. But those two, um, f at least for me, and I'm pretty sure for Cindy as well, had huge impacts on our lives and shaped our character um, to this point in our lives today. And... Um, so that's really the reason behind this podcast is to talk about those big dreams and to learn more experiences from other people and to try to discern patterns that um, might uh, enhance the way we approach our, um, our, our chasing of these, these dreams in our lives, our, our pursuit of these dreams. And um, so in closing, I want to read a passage from a Jeff Hoffman and David Finkel book called Scale. And Jeff Hoffman is talking about how dreams uh, impacted him in his life. 
um, on page, oh my gosh, I can't read anymore, 256 of his book Scale, he says, uh, when Jeff was 10 years old, he went over to his friend Mike's house where a few other friends were gathered, fawning over his newest poster of a red Ferrari. Later that day, Jeff asked his mom what the big deal was about the car. He didn't understand why Mike and his friends seemed so impressed by it. Jeff's mom replied that people often find them, themselves fascinated by things they'll never have. Mm. What do you mean that they'll never have it? Jeff asked. His mom responded, Jeff, that car probably costs the same as our house. Very few people will ever, will ever be financially successful enough to be able to afford that car. Jeff clearly remembers saying to her, but someone must be able to afford that car. Why not me? His mom tried to explain that it just wasn't realistic for him to think he could ever own a car like that. As Jeff walked away, he said one last time, almost as if to himself, yeah, but somebody gets that car. And then, as we all probably know, later on, Jeff founded uh, Priceline.com and it went public. And, you know, he's a billionaire right now and he, he bought the car. <laughs> he bought a car for himself. He probably bought a, bought a lot of the cars, a lot of Ferraris for himself. So I just, I love that anecdote as well. Um, that one, um, I heard him talk about that in, uh, at a conference in Austin. A couple, when was that? 2017, 15, 15 2015. Yeah. We, we, we saw Jeff Hoffman in person and heard him tell that story as well. And, uh, it, it's a, for me, it's a very motivational um, perspective that, um, you, again, a vision of things in your life can really have huge impacts on w what you're able to achieve in your life. So thanks for listening, and we hope you'll tune in next time. Next week, we're going we're gonna to drop a podcast every week for the next 52 weeks, so please tune in to dream10x.com. Until next time, this is James and Cindy signing off.